Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams. And uh, before I get into the episode, we actually have a lot more listeners now than we did just a couple of weeks ago, thanks to uploading to Carbon TV. So if you didn't already know, we also are uploading our podcast to CarbonTV.com. And up there, we have seen an additional 30,000 downloads in just two weeks, which is absolutely phenomenal. So if you're listening on Carbon TV, thank you so much. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, everywhere else, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And of course, if you're on Carbon TV, if you're driving somewhere, of course, download, check out Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just search for Farm Traveler, or look for the link in the bio below. So anyway, let's dive into this week's episode here on the Farm Traveler Podcast. So if you follow us over on Instagram or Facebook, you know, um, it's just at farm underscore traveler, also link in the description, you might have known that I've been trying to work on a series idea here on Farm Traveler, where... We go from farm to table basically in the interviews where we interview a farmer and then maybe a processor and then we interview somebody else, maybe making a technology that helps get that food stuff on your table or developing technology that's making it easier for farmers, stuff like that. Well, it's been a lot harder than I thought it would be to plan that, but we are starting today with the first series here on Farm Traveler, focusing on an exciting new technology that is helping farmers actually do more with less. So you know the whole phrase, regenerative agriculture, sustainable farming, all of that good stuff is really about doing more with less, caring for the environment while also producing a lot of food for a lot of people on the planet. So on today's interview, we are going to be chatting with Adam Lytle from a cool new company called Sound Ag. So Sound Ag has a product that is helping greatly decrease the amount of fertilizer needed for crops. So what it does, it acts 
as kind of like a spray whenever you're putting down um, pesticides or small amounts of fertilizer. And basically the chemicals in that solution help drive soil microbes to work around the plant's roots and help them take up more nitrogen and phosphorus. So Adam and I are gonna talk about it in the interview. We're gonna get kind of in the weeds of the chemistry, the importance of soil microbes and stuff like that. And also really why farmers are paying more and more attention now to soil fertility than they were decades ago. And so this is a really cool concept, well, not really a concept, but a really cool technology and even Adam and I are gonna chat about how they are different from a lot of products and they are not just concept, they are reality. And speaking of the whole series idea, next week here on the Farm Traveler Podcast, which I believe will be episode 169, we will be chatting with a farmer that actually uses these products. And we'll talk to her and learn about what her family farm does, their backgrounds, and what differences they have noted when they started using this product from Sound Ag. So this is so cool. I think this product is really neat. It's called Source. And right now it works for corn and I believe soybeans, but they're trying to test it for different crops. So I really think you'll enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Wherever you're listening from, whether that's Apple, Spotify, wherever, thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Adam, welcome to the show. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Uh, just sitting out here in, um, in sunny Northern California. Uh, look forward to chatting. Hey, jealous. Um, I'm down here in Florida. So it's actually finally gotten a little cool. It's in the upper 70s with some nice breeze, aka this is basically our winter time. So it's pretty right. nice. <laughs> Glad to hear. And, and hopefully you're okay after Hurricane Ian and uh, your loved ones are all right. Yeah, luckily. Thank you. Yeah, I'm up here in North Florida. So we, I mean, really, it was we haven't gotten any rain since then. But yeah, we know a bunch of people in South Florida that are kind of struggling. So I mean, yeah, kind of crazy times. But you know, I mean, it's kind of the usual in Florida. We always get that one bad storm every five or so years. So right. right. But yeah, glad to hear that. Well, thank you. So you're with Sound Ag, which is really, really interesting. So kind of tell me the inspiration. What really started Sound Ag, like what was the inspiration behind it? So uh, Sound Agriculture was founded by two biochemistry PhDs who knew each other from college at University of Texas. And um, they, they both went a little bit different ways, but had focused on uh, looking at ways you could use chemistry to induce plant life and help protect against abiotic stress, essentially environmental and other things that would get get in the way of yield um, and feeding the world. And uh, typically chemistries are used in agriculture to kill things. So pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, which are critical for production agriculture. Um, but it's a little, little bit of a novel way to look at chemistry to flip that on its head. And so um, one of them ended up going, was a professor at Oxford and um, had, had focused on work in what's called strigolactones, uh, a class of chemistries for drought resistance and other things. And then ultimately, um, uh, took some of that focus and, and founded this company uh, with, with his friend Eric Davidson. Uh, that was back in late 2013. The, the team was a small team in a lab screening different chemistries to look at different kinds of abiotic stress and ultimately came across something that worked really well with nutrient efficiency uh, as a foliar spray. 
And after a few years of field trials to make sure that it worked consistently and the data was sound, um, part of the reason for the name, Sound Agriculture, <laughs> launched in 2020. Um, and now we're one of the um, leading um, fertilizer alternatives on the market in the U.S., uh, as well as um, can be used as a yield booster for a variety of products by stimulating the soil microbiome to uh, produce more nutrients for the plant. So how exactly does this work as opposed to a natural fertilizer? I mean, I know, for example, like a natural fertilizer, you're, if a crop is deficient in nitrogen, you're going to put down a nitrogen heavy fertilizer. Just kind of mm -hmm. depends on what that crop needs and really kind of what the soil is lacking. So how does this really differ than a regular fertilizer? So a regular uh, fertilizer is, is usually a synthetic on the nitrogen side. It's a synthetic nitrogen product, a variety of forms of that, but all kind of created with the Haber-Brosch process that was embedded back in the 1930s and um, was able to really scale yields across the world and one of the 10 most important achievements of the 20th century. Uh, but the downside is it, it's relatively dirty, it's expensive um, and, and sometimes dangerous to make, hard to ship. Uh, and, and farmers are applying tons of this fertilizer to their crop to, to boost yields every year, especially um, crops like, like corn and wheat and others, um, soybean fixes its own nitrogen. So um, we replace that synthetic nitrogen with a very small amount of uh, chemistry, actually an ounce per acre, if you can believe that, that goes on as a foliar spray when uh, mid-season farmers are spraying a pesticide, herbicide, or, or fungicide, and they just throw us in the tank with the trip they're already doing because uh, we're such low application rate. And we uh, signal to the microbes that are already in the soil, uh, specifically the nitrogen fixers and, and phosphorus solubilizers, to do their job faster and harder. So think of it kind of like caffeine for those microbes. Uh, they already exist in the soil. Uh, it's part of the organic matter. And we found a way to mimic a natural process that occurs between the root zone and the microbes to, to just say increase the rate of that. And as a result, you get more natural um, nitrogen fixation coming out of the atmosphere and you get those microbes breaking down more of the phosphorus and making it accessible for the plant as opposed to um, what often happens, which is uh, it washes out into waterways and goes into the air as nitrous oxide. It causes a lot of issues with uh, both greenhouse gas emissions and, and water quality. So, so uh, we can replace up to 30% of the nitrogen that growers use in that way. Um, and it's also a lot cheaper for them. So it's kind of a win-win. Yeah, that's not bad. I mean, especially now, because I know fertilizer prices are astronomically high. And so it sounds like this is a great all-natural um, Red Bull, basically, for those soil microbes. <laughs> Yep. Yep. I haven't used that one, one before <laughs> one the trademark police would get me, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's effectively, uh, stimulating further what's already there. Another analogy could be, um, like an insulin pump. You, you, you can trigger a mechanism in your body to pump more insulin. And mm. so there's, there's small amounts of chemical signaling that can go a really long way. And we're really the tip of the iceberg with, um, ways to work with what you got. We make it a simple message, um, as opposed to needing a lot of exogenous things to, uh, to grow food. So what exactly, I mean, you guys developed this, it, it sounds like y'all have a very extensive background, like what, what was the purpose behind um, creating the chemistry about this to where it directly focuses on fixing nitrogen and unlocking phosphate? Because I know there's, I don't know, a couple dozen nutrients when it comes to plant health. So why were those two nutrients super important? Well, those are the two um, 
major ones in terms of if you have to choose what contributes the most to plant health, plant vigor, and thus and thus yield. Uh, and two, they're the most expensive. So if you if you think about a typical row crop grower who have uh, 90% of the acres in the U.S. and most ag ag uh, countries. Um, you're you're spending about 15% of your overall cost on nitrogen and another um, 7% I believe on phosphorus. So all in, you're looking at a very high portion of your of your opex of your budget as an investment. And two, um, they're they're inefficiently used as we talked about. So uh, it's all about um, more elegant ways of getting access to things that um, don't have negative ramifications because there's a lot of phosphorus that's that's locked up and the crop can't get access to. And then there's a lot of nitrogen that, that just gets wasted because it's, it, it's mm. soluble and moisture has an issue with it uh, um, during, the, during the season leaching and other things. We also actually see some effects on micronutrients and other factors because we are acting as a universal signal to those beneficial microbes. But where the value comes in is, is more so on the nitrogen and phosphorus side. Okay, so what, I mean, I know you mentioned it a little bit before, but what crops can this work with? And even like what crops can it not work well with? So because it's uniquely working on nitrogen and phosphorus versus a lot of microbe products are just on nitrogen, um, it's it's a product for soybeans as well as corn. Mm. And then we just launched uh, wheat, cotton, alfalfa, and hay this year. Uh, so we're excited about that, expanding the market. We want to make sure we do uh, several years of trials with each crop we go after so that the, the science truly is sound and um, backable. And we have things like performance guarantee um, because we are, we are so confident in our product. And so we need to have that data for both ourselves and our customers. And then we're also testing it in other crops like canola and potatoes and kind of going down the list in terms of um, largest impact to the environment and, and largest market opportunity, uh, just from a bottom line perspective. There's no reason it can't really work on any crop because uh, all crops need nitrogen and phosphorus. It's just a matter of um, we, do, we do tweak the formulation. We mm -hmm. do have to think about when it's applied. Um, it's different in crops, different environments. And so we, we need to do a little bit of studying to make sure that's right before we just go across the board. Yeah, let me pick your brain there a little bit. Like, let's say, I don't know, down the road, I'm here in Florida, so we have a lot of oranges. Like, mm -hmm. what exactly would go into that process where you're trying to fine tune the formula to where it might work for orange groves, for example? So what all would go into that? Um, well, we would have to say, uh, how does the how does that crop take up nutrients, first of all? Mm. And um, in that case, it's going to be... Uh, through the root zone with microbes, as well as the, the synthetic um, that is added. And then we'd have to think about how the product gets applied. So um, if it sprays to the leaves of an orange tree, for example, as a, as a pesticide, then does it translocate in the same way because it's traveling a lot larger distance to the root zone? And so we think generally when we've done that, the answer is yes, it gets there, but it might be a slightly different efficacy rate or, or we might need a more or less of the product. And so we would go testing that in the field with, um, let's say, three different application rates. We would test it with different timings. And then um, we, we have a, diff a couple different active ingredients and formulations that we would try. So it's, it's basically a, a permutation problem set of uh, half a dozen things you try and you just see what works best. So that's why you need a budget. You need some investment and you need a couple of years of iteration to get that right. Yeah, I'm sure that whole, um, the process of just kind of figuring it all out and fine tuning it, I'm sure that's a lot of development. I mean, do y'all have like a research 
base or do you kind of partner with farmers to kind of go through that whole initial um, where you're fine tuning the, the chemistry behind it? We do both. And that's just to be really efficient about it and mm-hmm. try to operate a little faster than some of the incumbent companies, uh, because I, I do believe as a startup uh, speed is a big differentiator in terms of how fast you can iterate and learn the, the companies that learn. The, uh, someone told me, um, mentor at one point, um, your goal as a startup is to learn as fast as possible without going out of business. And if you can do that, then you'll end up winning if you continue to learn and iterate fast. So we, we do take that principle and we have a paid uh, contract research organizations, CRO trials that are small plot. Uh, we usually start there. We do some greenhouse trials and then we um, try to get to larger strip trials on the farm within uh, a year or two, as opposed to other companies will often take three years plus. And that way we're working with real growers, larger acres, and they get to see it and believe it on their land, um, which mm-hmm. is because then you're accelerating your, your time to market, no matter what a company says, frankly, about their data when it comes to agronomic inputs. Uh, in the years of study, you typically still need to prove that it works in certain environments or in a given county or region, if not on someone owns farm, because you don't know whose data to believe and, and people are ske- naturally skeptical. So that combination of approaches does allow us to get things to market within, let's say, a few years versus others might take five or six. Yeah, I feel like a lot of startups now, I mean, they don't really have a huge proof of concept. Instead, they're a lot of theory based and like, oh, if you do X, Y and Z, um, this will happen. And I mean, that's good that you guys are backing it up with your own testing, but also putting it out in the field and seeing how it how it does. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I just I'm, I'm a little bit of a I'm more moderate in terms of how I like to pursue innovation. I, I'm not going to be the one on one side, which is saying, let's disrupt everything and barbarian at the gate and <laughs> everything can be done a completely new way um, and like go on theory and just iterate constantly. I, but I'm also not most conservative. So I am willing to say, let's um, let's move fast and try things if we are protecting the downside of the growth. Mm. That's the key. Um, there's too much risk involved with only 40 chances in your life to get a harvest. And so it's incumbent upon companies and investors to take that risk because we have more access to capital um, than to put it on the grower who's a small business. And if they're screwed in one year, then they could lose their entire business. And so that's worked really well for us. And I think that's a principle that innovators should take in the space, especially as you're getting more and more stuff every year and, and, and growers don't know who to choose. Man, that's a, I feel like that's a really good talking point. I mean, you only have 40 years to get a good crop. And I mean, if you lose it for one year, that's so much money down the drain. I mean, that can really put, I don't know, their business, like they can put their farm out of business if you don't manage it right. And so you guys obviously providing a good that's going to help produce a better crop and also help farmers do more with less. Like if you guys don't get it just right, you can potentially like ruin somebody's business and livelihood and like an eighth generation farm. So it's obviously in your best interest to make sure your product is going to perform as advertised. That's right. <laughs> right. Um, sorry, I've got a bit of a lingering cough. Uh, I, I, there's a little bit of moderation involved in the sense that we are at the end of the day, um, we're working on what I would, what I would call the, the tail of the nitrogen and fertilizer curve, curve where we're not saying, hey, replace all your nutrition with us. Um, you might cut back a, a bit, right? Um, 10, 20, 30%. And we're very data-driven with that too. So we actually have an algorithm, uh, which, which as far as I know, this is pretty unique, where we will ingest a few data points that every grower has. Uh, we'll, we'll look at your nutrient efficiency scores, so your pounds of nitrogen to your yield target. 
we'll look at pH organic matter and what's called cation exchange capacity, CEC. So five data points, and we'll actually spit out a recommendation to use us to either boost yield or use us to reduce nitrogen um, and maintain yield. Or even in some cases, we say don't use us because in about 15% of the cases, we're going to give you limited response. It's oh, not- okay. And, and so we're trying to use data science to get more targeted and precise to address that exact issue you mentioned where um, we'll get growers coming back year after year because they're not, they're not just you know, hoping and, and praying that it works. Uh, we actually have a sense of high efficacy and as a result, willing to backstop the risk. So those things go hand in hand, whereas I think input companies that are just doing a spray and pray approach of you know, maybe it'll work, maybe not, um, is going to go by the wayside soon. Yeah, I feel like there's been this huge shift. I mean, well, the ag industry really shifts like every couple of hundred years, every, like, I don't know, every 50 or 100 years, maybe, vaguely. But mm-hmm. I feel like years ago, there was this huge shift where just spray, 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 like spray as much as you can to help kill off everything that's not your crop. But now we're learning we need to do more with less. Like you guys, like we need to figure out ways where we can use less fertilizer because one, it's expensive. Two, we don't need to be pumping all of this stuff into the soil because the soil is the most important part. And so it's cool that companies like you guys and even farmers around the world are really realizing like we need to be more conscious about what we're doing and not just have this like, you know, nuke it approach where we just nuke everything. We just are constantly paying attention to like what we're going to spray, what we're going to put into the soil. Yep. Yep, exactly. And and I think as you get more this is a little cliche at this point, but consumer <laughs> pressure uh, and, mm. and environmental pressure, there's going to be carrots and sticks for the space uh, from government and companies um, to to move move growers there and, and, and protect risks. So it's all that's part of the reason that I'm doing the company as a CEO. I joined in 2020 um, because I just I really believe that's inevitable and it's important to get for growers to be experimenting with these things, with the right partners so that when those ramp up, they can move quickly and, and scale across the whole farm versus just the old ways of doing it. So that's interesting. Did you come from like an agriculture background at all? Yeah. Well, I originally, um, my grandmother, uh, had a farm in, in Ontario, Canada, actually I grew up in Michigan, not too far from the border, but I wouldn't say I'm a farm kid by any, by any means. I, uh, I, I spent a lot of my life in the city and <laughs> um, even though I'm, I'm from the Midwest, I really, enjoy um, having one foot in the heartland, one foot in, in kind of the innovation center out here in, in the Bay Area, California. Um, I did not I did not come from a farm. I have been though working in the space for about 12 years now. So a lot has happened in that period. Ag tech as a space has sort of come into its own and you've seen a, a, a 10x increase in investment as people see opportunities to, to help grow food in a, in a, in a different way. So uh, at this point, I've been in biofuels. I've, I've worked in cellulosic ethanol. I've worked uh, as a founding team of Granular, uh, which was a vertical SaaS company for growers that got acquired by Corteva. I worked at Corteva for a few years, one, one of the largest ag companies, um, uh, running the commercial side of their digital business before joining Sound. So um, I've had I've had the luck to work in a lot of different aspects of the space, and Sound is just really a perfect blend of, of all those things that I love. That's awesome. So kind of as like a, an outside perspective, like you didn't know, I mean, your grandma had a farm, but you weren't like a farmer really involved in ag. Like when you joined those companies, did you, were you kind of like surprised that ag is a lot more scientific than people might kind of give it credit for? 
I don't know. I, I, I don't think I was surprised at that, frankly. I, mm. I, knew, I knew aspects of, of agronomy and I knew the complex, like intuitively it made sense to me that it's very complex in terms of how soil interacts with practices, interacts with genetics, interacts with weather. And early on, I guess I went into it with very few um, assumptions and, and more just open-minded. And I was pretty early in my career when I chose this path. And uh, one thing that resonated was a farm is like a manufacturing plant outside. You've got all the complexities of, of manufacturing a car, let's say, but you, you don't have to deal with weather, right? Mm. So even more variables. Oh, yeah. I'm attracted to, for better or worse, kind of complicated system problems and opportunities. And for me, I'm like, oh, that's amazing. So many opportunities to, to help there from efficiency standpoint or from environmental standpoint or from a profit perspective, because it's like incredibly difficult to um, to be a be a grower, right? Uh, you don't have a lot of pricing power for the most part, and you've got to deal with all these variables. And so um, I, I latched onto it for that reason. And I'd say um, the complexity wasn't surprising. It was more like uh, just a giant opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a really good point that there's also a lot of variables in there. I mean, the weather, the type of seed you get, um, where you are, the soil quality, there's so many factors that kind of go into play. And I mean, that, that, that's a really good factor that, a lot, that I often forget about, but there's so many factors that go into play. And if one of those is off, it really just kind of, it's a keystone and it will just blow up everything else down the line, really. Yep. Yep. A lot of interdependency on those <laughs> variables. Um, I mean, one interesting thing about it too is it can either create a, ha a glass half full or glass half empty mindset where, you know, some people, if you talk to folks, um, they're a little cynical about it. They're like, oh, no matter what I do, if I get a drought, I'm screwed. So like, <laughs> who cares about all the optimizing those decisions? I'm just going to roll and like do the same thing I always do because it's 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 too stressful otherwise for things that can just go down the drain. Others say, um, and a, and 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 a, somebody I looked up to in the space named Danny Kleinfelter who ran uh, this TPAP program at a Texas and M for a while, which is essentially like a mini MBA for growers. Uh, he had this 5% rule and, you know, there are so many things you can't impact, but because profit margins are thin, if you can focus on improving 5% here, 5% there, 5% there across inputs, grain marketing, operational efficiency, labor, et cetera, you win. Like you are, you are optimizing for expected risk and value. And so many folks don't take that from i I'm going to tackle all of it. And they throw their hands up where it provides an opportunity for innovators and those who are a little more progressive in how they want to run the business. Yeah, and kind of disrupt that space. I mean, that's a perfect place to be in. Um, and before I forget, like, I'm curious, um, I mean, there's a lot of places that either they have monocrops where they grow the same thing over and over again, and then a lot of places where they have crop rotation where they do that to kind of maintain the balance of um, soil microbes, soil nutrients. Does mm -hmm. that, either monocrops or crop rotation, how does this come into play with that? Oh, yeah. Great question. Um, I'd say a related factor is almost just regenerative ag and soil health um, mm. dynamics in general. So uh, <clears throat> all soil is going to have some level of, of microbial activity and organic matter. And generally, if you've got a monocropping system, that a lot of production ag is turned into to optimize for uh, a, a, a highest price cash crop and um, you're, you're kind of looking at rinse and repeat um, and it does end up having weaker soil. You, you end up um, applying a lot of synthetics 
uh, it's almost like a muscle atrophies in the soil mm -hmm. with the microbial population. Um, whereas a more biodiverse situation, when you have rotation between corn and soybeans, for example, when you have um, reduced tillage to allow more um, of an organic matter system to grow, when you have cover crops, uh, that does create healthier soil. And um, we can work with both, but our product and our approach tends to really help de-risk the transition to regenerative because if you're going there, we, we supplement the activity of your soil weak or strong and mm -hmm. we can um, boost your, your profit, your bottom line and reduce yield drag as you're strengthening your soil. So at the very upper echelons, let's say you have, um, you're a grower with 8% organic matter, which is kind of the limit of what a lot of people think you can get. Uh, your average grower would have 2% um, in, in the heartland. Uh, it's such strong soil, you can get away with like half the nitrogen your neighbor might apply or, or even less. Um, there, you might be already so optimized that um, you don't need as much product like ours and we're going to be more limited. However, that is so rare. That is like a, you know, a few percent of growers, whereas the mass market is still trying to figure that out. Um, and it's hard to get there for a number of reasons. And our product um, really applies across, I'd say, a good 90% of acres uh, who aren't there yet. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, because I know that's something that a lot of people are paying a lot more attention to. I mean, both farmers and consumers, like we were saying earlier, they're wanting to pay better attention to soil health, regenerative agriculture, even carbon sequestration. And so you're seeing a lot of like monocrops turn into crop rotation or no-till and stuff like that. And so it's cool to see, I mean, I don't know, kind of how that impact is happening. And really, like you mentioned before, that consumer-driven change is kind of happening where people are changing up their practices or even startups like you guys are starting up really disrupting the industry and really changing for the better how things are done. So that's really, really neat. Yeah. I, and I, I wouldn't even say disrupted. I mean, I, I think this really is more of an evolution, mm. which um, doesn't go counter to anything that, that what a lot of the space is moving towards, which is that more, I'd say, slowly regenerative approach, as long as that can work profitably. And as long as it can work within the confines of production and agriculture, and you can't just snap your fingers and do that. But um, the impetus, yeah, consumers care about that. But most of the growers who are moving in that direction, and, and you've got almost half of growers carbon cropping now, is because they make more money. And, mm. and they actually see their input bills going down um, and yields staying strong. But you, you have to consider alternative ways to doing it. You can't just look at your typical fertilizer program, your typical um, uh, crop protection program. And that's where products like Source or um, Mycorrhizae or uh, Biochar, some other aspects, um, microbials, this whole new newer nutrient efficiency space is really taking off. And you've got, I saw a data point recently, 75% of growers are interested in putting products like this on their farm, whereas hmm. um, only 7% have really implemented them fully into the program. So there's a massive opportunity set of where, where, where growers are moving right now. And that's Shoot, that was even before you saw a lot of these fertilizer run-ups. So that's just uh, accelerating it even more. Oh, exactly. And I don't, I don't think we've covered this yet, but does this apply? I mean, can you use this for if you're an organic grower or not? No, unfortunately, at least not not in corn. Um, okay. Because we're, what we're doing is we, are, we, we identify this set signal between the root zone and the microbes that happen naturally. And we mimic it with a with a um, specialty chemical, um, but it is a synthetic process. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we are a 
like scalable synthetic chemistry takes us out of the running for that organic quote unquote certification, even though, you know, like four gallons of our product can replace a, a semi truck of nitrogen fertilizer. So ultimately it's a heck of a lot healthier for the consumer. And I'd say within the principles of organic, but um, that space can be fairly rigid in terms of how they define things. So it's sort of like synthetic chemical bad. No matter what. <laughs> even though I, I think we would squarely be, um, and we are in that, in that, um, regenerative movement. Now, the consumer doesn't really know the difference between those things, arguably, or most don't, and it's kind of nuanced. Um, but I do think increasingly it's going to be about regenerative soil health, planetary health, in addition to, um, in addition to like the, tr- uh, I'd say, traditional confines of quote-unquote organic. Yeah, it might be that regenerative is kind of that kind of that new buzzword instead of just organic, which is kind of interesting. And the more farmers I interview, I interviewed um, an apple farmer from mm-hmm. Washington State who, for um, a YouTube video I'm working on that's kind of explains um, uh, organic farming and what that is. And basically, they were saying that Washington organic standards are like the highest in the country, and they had organic apples. But one of the fence posts, one of the fence posts that they had to replace was pressure treated. And so because of that fence post, they were not allowed to sell as organic, even though absolutely everything, the fertilizer, the pesticides, everything was organic. But that one fence post wasn't. And because it could potentially leach out into the soil, get up into um, some water up into the tree. But because of that one thing, it didn't apply as organic. So. That was very, very interesting. But only, if only someone had taken a taken another trip to Home Depot. <laughs> I know, right? To get, to get <laughs> a regular, non-pressure-treated um, right, right, piece of wood, right. which I is mean, interesting. I get it. Like it, you know, when you're a standards board, you, it's hard to make exceptions. But, yeah. but it, I would. I do think it's a little overly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want onerous on some of those things. And that that's a great example. Of that. Yeah, just a tad. I mean, is there any potential there to where you guys at Sound could potentially make something that would work for um, a multitude of organic crops? Uh, yes. And so um, actually our soybean product is, uh, is, a, is a different active ingredient that is derived from um, a natural product, actually a flower product. Uh, it's in the flavonoid category of, of chemistries, and that can be organic. We haven't prioritized going through the process, but um, th- we can get after this with both uh, synthetic chemistries and, and natural chemistries. I think the main goal for us is not, I kind of view organic as the tail on the dog here. The main view is to um, have something that is much healthier for the environment uh, and replaces those bulk chemistry with what's much, much smaller volumes and, and targeted approaches. Uh, I care much more about that than quote than than just standard organic. Partially because organic is only a, like two percent of the acres in the U.S. I don't know if you knew that, but it's like yeah, it's really really low. Yeah. So so look, I I care about climate change a lot. I have drank the Kool Aid. Drank the Kool Aid. I think that weather is going to be more volatile as a result of um, these things. And if you can reduce nitrogen by thirty percent worldwide, that is the equivalent of taking. 200 million cars off the road. Oh, wow. Because nitrous oxide is 300x more potent than the same molecule of carbon dioxide. So so here's another data point throughout. Two to 5% of all greenhouse gas emissions come from the use of nitrogen fertilizer in in agriculture. So it is such a massive amount of of emissions. um, and, And if we make a dent in that, that is really meaningful towards climate change. 
I honestly care a lot more about that than I do about jumping through the organic hoops because the acres just aren't there. And um, I think the risk to human health, planet, plant health, et cetera, is 10x, 100x greater from that climate variability than I do from organic. Because in 30 years, otherwise, Trevor, we're only going to be growing crops on a quarter of what we can today. And we need to move fast to solve that problem. That's such a good point, kind of regenerative versus organic, really. Because, I mean, like a lot of people don't... Well, I don't know. I feel like this trend has been happening the past like two or three years where more people are realizing that agriculture can be a great... Not really, well, kind of a solution, but is really part of the part of the solution to fixing yeah. climate change. Because I mean, if if we're companies carbon, like carbon you guys, farming and other vernacular, I mean, there, there's complexities, but absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I mean, carbon sequestration. I mean, so many crops sequester so much carbon, whether it's like forests. I mean, I'm here in North Florida, and we have a ton of of timber farms, and so that's so much carbon that's being sequestered because of those trees, and not a lot of people realize that. And so agriculture. No matter if it's, I don't know, rotational grazing for cattle, timber farms, crops, it is going to be a huge part of the solution, especially when we can have technologies like this where you're putting in less fertilizer, you're really harnessing the power that's happening in the soil with the soil microbes and everything going on. So it's a great example that ag is really part of the solution. Uh, Absolutely. In the U.S., about 90 million acres of corn, 90 million acres of soybeans, uh, and, and then I believe it's another 40 million acres of wheat. So um, two thirds of the acres in the U.S. would do those three crops. And, and, and that alone, if you're addressing uh, carbon sequestration and, and, and carbon offset through reducing nitrogen, um, which growers can get paid carbon credits for now, uh, we're, we're, we're trying to get them paid for that also uh, to defray cost of our product. Um, that, that is absolutely where to focus um, if we're going to think about climate change solutions from food and ag. And timber as well. It just happens to not be something we're working on, but I agree with that too. I got you, yeah. And you you brought that up. Um, what exactly is the cost of carbon? Like, I mean, how much can the farmer make per acre? I mean, I know it's not, I don't know, like $15, $30 per acre or something like that. Yeah, you got it. I mean, it, it, that that's right. It, it, it's a little variable depending on the quality of the credit and the buyer. Mm. And so I've heard uh, as low as $10 an acre. I've heard as high as 50 actually. Oh, wow. Okay. And so it matters, it matters whether or not you have data to support that credit. It matters whether or not um, the buyer thinks that the, uh, the carbon is going to be re-released, which is uh, one of the challenges of sequestration versus if you reduce nitrogen versus a baseline, it's solely a math problem because you know that you're going to reduce nitrous oxide annually and there's no more risk of that uh, being released like it happens as an annual abatement. So that's, that's arguably a higher quality credit that... Um, you can implement annually without a, without tying up your assets. So that's why we really, really like it. What What's fascinating, though, is what's going to drive those markets and what's going to happen to it. And so um, let's say the average right now is 15 to 20 bucks a ton uh, or an acre equivalent. That That's what I would peg it as. All of these companies have made commitments to reduce their carbon footprint, either through uh, their own supply chain or buying offsets by 2025 and again 2030. So most experts in the space, and I agree with them, uh, think that by 2025, you're going to see an increasing cost as companies are like, crap, how are we going to reduce our emissions to get to our commitments? And so they're going to be buying up more credits. And like any supply demand market, it's going to increase the cost. So my guess is they, they, they probably go up to call it 50 bucks an acre, and then you'll see some volatility. 
But if you're talking that, it starts to get really interesting for a grower because then it's not a distraction. It's like an actual mm. impact on their P&L. And you could, you, could, you could offset the entire cost of buying our product by the carbon credit you get for that nitrogen reduction. Yeah, and that's and perfect. I mean, that's a win-win. From buying that nitrogen and you're getting a few more bushels of yield because you're creating a healthier crop uh, even without, without as much nitrogen. That's awesome. That's a win-win. I mean, sequestering carbon, reducing nitrogen, all while improving yield. I mean, I really don't yeah. see any downside to this, which, which, which is great, right? Yep. And that's why we do things like that performance guarantee, because sometimes it sounds too good to be true. And I, I get it. You want to be skeptical of that and, and, and make sure it's proven. But this is where, again, I'm really excited about the space and why I've dedicated my career to it is it's one of those things where the interest of your customer set growers, the consumers, and, and the planet um, all, all kind of line up. Hmm. So at the end of the day, what is kind of the, the end result for consumers? Are they going to be getting, obviously, a healthier planet, but are they also going to be getting like healthier produce, better produce, higher quality? What's the end result going to be for, for um, consumers? So there's a lot of research into in, the fact that um, more n- nutrient-dense foods result from healthier soils. And that's because the higher microbial, microbial activity you have, the more they're breaking down, not just nitrogen and phosphorus or fixing nitrogen and breaking down phosphorus, but also getting more trace minerals in, in your crop, things like uh, manganese, um, boron, uh, iron, and um, a number of other things because you've got that um, population, which is taking sugars and turning them into to minerals ultimately um, and other elements. So uh, that's why people are interested in, in, in healthier soils. And you have some chefs and, uh, and, and, and um, foodies essentially really focused on soil health linking to nutrient density. And then nutrient density equals healthier, healthier food, healthier produce, and um, healthier bodies as a result. Uh, we are squarely in that movement where we will support healthier soils and more microbial activity, even beyond nitrogen and phosphorus. So I think we have a positive impact there, but I'm, I'm not going to overclaim to say that we know exactly what like percentage increase in your health of, of, of boron or manganese. So I think there's more research to do there, um, but directionally there is um, absolutely positive health impact. And as we get more into food as medicine, and people get more data on that, and inevitably healthy soils um, are going to be a, a big driver of that. Yeah, it'll be cool to kind of see what kind of research comes out to what more nutrients consumers are getting because of products like this. And I mean, really, even how ag is kind of changing and we're paying more attention to soil health, the uh, crop yields and stuff like that. So yeah, it'll be kind of cool to see how diets change. Of course, as long as people eat healthy, as long as they eat these crops and stuff from them. So yeah, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, hopefully more data points will, will come from that. I think, I think they will. And I think there's also another thing beyond data, which is taste. Mm. Um, so no matter what, uh, an, an, some people term it as like, is the benefit that you're marketing for me or for we? And no matter how much it's for we around planetary health uh, or the, the, the greater good, um, for me is, is a taste attribute. And, and also nutrition, but like, if it doesn't taste great, um, you're not going to buy more produce. You're going to go for that bag of chips instead mm-hmm. of, uh, that, that carrot or strawberry, et cetera. And there's a lot of evidence, um, again, nutri- more nutrient dense, healthier soils lead to better tasting, um, more robust, vibrant flavors, um, in addition to nutrition. Yeah. That's a huge thing. I mean, nutrition, taste, 
I mean, I've interviewed a couple of companies in the past that are working on making fruits and vegetables tastier, really. Mm -hmm. where I mean, they're not GMOs. They kind of just edit the genes a little bit um, to where they're a little bit tastier, a little bit better. So, yeah, it'll be cool to see what comes out of the ag tech space going forward with all of that stuff. Yeah, and we actually, I love that space too. We actually have um, an earlier stage plan, the company and epigenetics, which which actually addresses that directly. Um, but we can leave that for another conversation. We're, we're huge believers that um, there's a multitude of more natural pathways you can get to. Uh, a similar approach as we're taking with microbes, but then the plant itself to augment gene expression and, and improve taste, sustainability, nutrition. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a whole other topic for another day. I mean, we can get in the weeds in that really easily. Exactly. <laughs> well, Adam, this has been awesome, man. Um, if people want to learn more about Sound Ag, if they are a consumer, they want to check you out, or better yet, if they are a farmer and they want to look into these products, where all can they go? So um, our website is uh, is sound.ag or www.sound.ag. And uh, check out there. There's a lot of different information. Um, you can also reach out to me, uh, Adam Lytle. I'm at uh, a.lytle, L-I-T-L-E, at sound.ag. And, and I love to interact directly with um really any, anyone looking to learn more. Um, we're still, we're still small enough that I get to, uh, know everyone at the company, um, mm. know, know a large part of our customers and, and, and them. So yeah. Well, perfect. Love to, love to chat or, uh, check us out on Twitter or Facebook and the typical social media approaches We're we're out there. <laughs> gotcha. Well, yeah, we'll link all that below, but Adam, it was a pleasure, man. Take care. Best of luck. Thanks so much, Trevor. Great conversation. It was fun. Again, thank you for listening to this episode with Sound Ag. If you want to, head to the link below in the description of this episode to find all the good links that we mentioned today, links for Sound Ag, as well as links for thefarmtraveler.com, all of our social media handles, and where you can subscribe and listen to the podcast, wherever that is. If you're out running errands, out shopping, working out, doing whatever, whatever works best for you, that is where you should subscribe to the show. So thank you for listening. See you next week.